You're listening to Cowley's Instructor Podcast, where the learning never stops. Welcome and thanks for listening to the first ever episode of Cowley's Instructor Podcast. So the aim of this podcast is to provide a a platform for learning. Um, I hope to pass on some of my knowledge, but also get some of the top trainers in the industry to come and pass on some of their knowledge. Please, please click subscribe so that you never miss an episode. If you want to get in touch with me um, about any training or any questions you have about the podcast or anything you, you want to talk about, um, find me on Facebook at Cowley's um, Instructor Training or on my website, theinstructortrainer.com. Um, so on to today's episode, uh, we're going to be talking to two amazing uh, ADIs, trainers and people in general. Um and we're going to be discussing the we'll, we'll be discussing their journey to become trainers and ADIs. Um, we're also going to have a little chat about the first comp on the standards check and and part three and and dig into that a little bit. Um, and then if you wait until the end, you'll be able to hear their top tips for um, driving instructors. So welcome, Diana and Dakalium. So um, we're going to start off then um, with a, just to find out a little bit about you guys. And I, actually, I know you guys, but I'm I'm still intrigued a little bit about some of these stories because I probably don't know the the, the details. So um, we'll start off with you, Diana, I think. Um, and tell me a bit about like how you got into the industry, why you wanted to become a driving instructor and how you went about your training. Okay, so... Mine wasn't a sort of lifelong passion or a dream or anything like that, actually, if, I, if I'm honest. Uh, mine is related to my husband. So when I met my then partner, um, oh, he's still my partner now, but he's now my husband. Um, when I met him, he was training to become a driving instructor with a, a large franchise and had already you know gone through the journey and had potentially made a couple of excuses as to why he hadn't progressed further <laughs> and then again didn't go any further you know we he sat one part two didn't do particularly well in it Um, not that he shares with me why or how it went he still hasn't to this day um but anyway that that was that and that was the end of his dream if you like and my sort of navigation into becoming a driving instructor stemmed from me wanting a better work-life balance that old chestnut um and being able to you know make up my own hours and you know I was sort of lulled into the whole you can earn this much money and work like hardly any amount of time uh that is not true for anybody that is listening so please be warned um so that was it you know and I used to be a director of sales and marketing I used to be a trainer I used to train internationally salespeople and um hospitality and people in the customer service industry and how to present effectively and and even I used to be a holiday rep so I used to train people how to become a holiday rep and you know so lots and lots and lots of um, training and development background but it was always a bit of a I've always fallen into these types of roles off the back of my original um, career so I was a holiday rep and a head rep fell into the training 
I was a director of sales and marketing for hotels, fell into the training. Um, I became a driving instructor and fell into the training. So there's a bit of a pattern here. Um, and actually, I, I, I would say I owe, I owe the, the training side of it to Lou and her development of me and nurturing of me and actually her just having the ability to see me as a, a person who actually I would say I'm probably a better trainer than I am driving instructor let's keep that in you don't need to edit that out that's <laughs> why I'm quite happy with that statement um but yeah that's that's how I fell into it um and I think, you know, because I was a COVID baby, if you like, in terms of my driving instructor journey, um, I decided I did my part one, part two um, with a local franchise, a quite a large local franchise company. Um, and then it came to the part three and I got my driving instructor insurance on the 17th of March 2020 I taught one person for free and then my 80 pound a month insurance car sat on the driveway for you know several months and you know so I was fortunate luckily I'd signed up to driving instructor site um and I got all these lovely zooms with Lou and Blaine and Laura and yeah so I think foundationally I had a really good support network to give me the best possible chance at passing my part three even though the journey was quite turbulent um because I passed um my part three first time with an A which is rare incredibly rare uh, and Lou had actually watched a few of my lessons, some of which are public and horrendous. <laughs> I have that problem too. Yeah, <laughs> but it, for me, it was okay. It didn't it didn't bother me because I was still learning. Even now, it doesn't bother me if I have the odd blip of a lesson because I learn from it. Um, but ultimately, I passed in August 2021, and Lou and Laura contacted me in October 2021 and asked me to support on the Lou's PDI group. And from that point of view, I just wanted to give back. I wanted to give back to the group and the community and help as much as I can. And I think when you deliver a good lesson and people have seen your lessons, they just naturally gravitate towards you anyway. And because I had the training background, it was it was just a natural fit. I, again, something I just fell into. Brilliant. Um, the, there's two things that stood out for me there. One, I'm going to have to get Stuart on to find out the story of how, what he did on that part too uh, <laughs> at some point. Um, and then also I, I'm intrigued by this idea that you – the, the sort of kind of lockdown baby idea because I had a couple of PDIs who who went through that same thing and we were doing weekly zooms um in fact I think we were doing two a week just to keep us entertained <laughs> during during that time and it is noticeable that they had that um massive like bulk of knowledge before they went out onto the road I think maybe they'd already been on the road but it just kind of gave you that time to really just take it all in without the pressure of the lessons um, so it was quite an interesting sort of kind of 
time to be to be a PDI, I think. So, um, yeah, and I think it shows because you have the knowledge, which is great. <laughs> Over to you then, to Callian. Uh, do you want to do the same? Just tell us your story. Yeah, I I, I noted Diana said um, at the start that she didn't become a driving instructor because she had any ingrained passion to be a driving instructor. And I just think, to be absolutely clear, I don't think any child ever thinks to themselves, when I grow up, I want to be a driving instructor. We all seem to like fall into it for, for right and wrong. And and my, I never envisaged myself per se doing this, but I, I, I got into this kind of as a result of a series of unfortunate events. When I was about 20 years old, I worked in various forms of management and training like Diana. Um, and I had a job that I loved. I really loved my job. Um, it was a pleasure to go every day to that to that work. And one day my regional manager, my line manager, left and was replaced with somebody that was, was very different. And for whatever reason, we were not compatible. And overnight, I went from adoring my job to hating my job, just instantly miserable. And I just... I kind of upped and left and I went traveling for a year and I really reflected on that. And and I thought that it became very apparent to me that all the time I was employed, my prospects and my, my income and where I'd work and how I'd work and how much enjoyment I'd, I'd get from work was dictated by other people. And so I was 21 by this point and I just thought, I'm not, I'm not going back into employment. I'll work for myself. And I genuinely, if I'm being completely honest, I just plucked the first thing I could think of that I could do self-employed. And and I reflected on that. It wasn't quite the, the diving into the unknown and the abyss, but I considered myself to be a good trainer. I considered myself to be somebody that could speak well and communicate well and had compassion and empathy. And I knew how to drive, not that that bears any reflection of your ability to teach people to drive. And I want to put that out there, but it was, I was just, I was 21 years old and it was the first thing that I, I could think that I had a set of skills that could lend itself to. And so I, I trained like Diana with one of the larger franchises, saw some flaws in the way those larger franchises worked. And I was quite keen to, to do it my own way. And one of the things for context, one of the things that was really important to me when I started training as an instructor when I was 21 was I reflected back on my own experience. And I've said this for years. Everybody remembers their driving instructor. Nobody ever forgets their driving instructor. We are this little unique character that everyone will always remember for the rest of their life. But quite often, more often than not, people don't have good stories to say about their driving instructor. And, and I didn't. I, I went through about six of them. And at least five of them were, were terrible. They were angry. They weren't punctual. They would shout. They would scream. One of them used to physically grab my knee every time I stalled the car and have a go at me. And they'd turn up late finish at the same schedule time and then charge me for the full amount. And when you're 17, that's a lot of money. And you're thinking about the 15 minutes that you got shortchanged and they were all terrible communicators. And so this was all relevant in, in, in my decision, because I, 
I was so aware, even at 17, that the standards seemed to be so poor across the average spectrum. And I'm not trying to knock the industry, but there were there were gaps in the industry that I felt could be worked on. And so by the time I was 21 and I was thinking about what I could do in a self-employed capacity, and I, I reflected on my own recollection of my memory, and I thought to myself, everybody always remembers their instructor. But it's our choice as instructors to decide whether they're going to remember us for the right reasons or the wrong reasons. And so when I trained, I was so keen to try and try and just provide some kind of experience where my learners would remember me fondly and could really reflect on their learning and say, no, that was brilliant. I really enjoyed that. I had somebody that understood me. And that was the extent of my vision as a driving instructor for about a year. And then as I was in partnership with a lot of these larger franchises, I realized the flaws in the larger franchises and the way they ran their businesses. And then that kind of led me into training instructors because the same way a lot of learners have found that they didn't always have good experiences with their instructors, I think a lot of instructors find that they don't have good experiences with the franchises and the schools they work with. And so the next natural progression for me was to really think, how can we do this differently? How can people get the guys who are training learners? How can they get trained effectively in ways that will mold them and their learners and maybe even mold the people that then become instructors later down the line? It was never something I was really envisaging as a child by any means. I don't think anybody does that, but it did come from a place of I didn't have a great experience with my own learning. Can I can I change that for other people? And then as I went through my training and I I found issues with the larger brands and the larger schools, I thought, can I change that for other people? Because people are going to come into this industry and I'm sure we're going to cover this in this conversation today, but the amount of guys and girls that come into this industry and have terrible experiences, the same way a lot of our learners have terrible experiences with their instructors. Is it any wonder that the learners have a poor experience when the instructors are also having a poor experience? So that's kind of how I got into it. And that's ultimately how I got into training instructors was from a genuine desire to try and just improve that interaction and that corner of the industry for everyone, for everyone, from the learner to the instructor to the to the franchise. Eight years down the line, here we are. <laughs> I'm talking to you, wonderful people. That's a quite a mission you're on. Um, so I'm intrigued um, with this idea of, and I love the fact that you're right. Everyone does remember their their driving instructor. My my driving instructor now fits my dual controls. Uh, so we still know my driving instructor and I actually remember my driving instructor quite fondly it, we, we didn't have that many lessons my dad taught me and and um and then I had like the bolt-on lessons I was one of those annoying pupils um he but yeah he was friendly it was nice and I actually had quite a good good experience with my instructor and with my trainer actually with a national school um but I think again I was quite rare in that and she and possibly she was quite feisty actually but I was okay with that, <laughs> but other people didn't get on with that in the same way that I did. So you talked about wanting to change that experience for your learners and change that experience for your PDIs. Talk to me about how. So like, what is it that you do with your with your learners that you think is is that moment that they they take away? And, and, and I'd say the same for your PDIs. Well, for me, when I was 17, I was thinking... You know, I want, I'd like, I'd quite like one day to be able to provide a better standard than that. And when I was 21, I was trying to do that. And then I became an instructor and I realized that, and I'm generalizing here, but a lot of the guys and girls that were teaching learners 
hadn't been trained very well themselves, hadn't been having good agreements with franchises. And so they were probably pressured and stressed and they were confined and constricted to very difficult contracts. And so it wasn't an environment that allowed them to be the very best trainers that they could be. And so every time I kind of worked my way to a point where I was like, this is where I can make a difference. I realized actually, no, 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 the problem is here. And I kind of climbed up to a point where I really felt like I could. And so to answer your question, I, I, do, I think I, in some form, have had an have had an advantage with my learners and the relationships I have because I was 21 when I started. And a lot of people took one look at me, particularly parents, and thought, no, he's not an instructor. But actually, from a relationship point of view, I had great relationships with my with my learners. And some of my best friends today are people that I taught to drive uh, because we were the same age and we were probably going through a lot of the same things. An area that I think I, I do well is I, I genuinely care about people. I genuinely care about people. That's an easy thing to say. Anyone can say that. But I don't think, I think it's easy to overlook it. I genuinely care about people. I care about the needs of those around me and the people I'm working with. I also think that, and there's no, there's no humble way of saying this, but I think that I can communicate very effectively with precision at pace. And I was lucky, like you, I had a trainer who, uh, when I was training to be an instructor, I, I really got on with. Uh, you know, I want to be clear about that. And he gave me a good foundation. So I was fortunate to have that fundamental influence. I actually believe the key to having a great relationship with, with learners, it, it, it has nothing to do with, uh, well, it has something to do with your personality, but it, it starts sooner than that. It starts from your training. And then as I matured and I fell into this role more and more, I realized that a lot of the reasons we have learners that are having difficult experiences with instructors is because the instructors haven't been given what they need. And so now when I look at the relationships that we have with our learners, it absolutely appears to me that it's it's built on the skills and the competence and the experiences that the instructors get when they're going through their training. And so I like to think my training, and again, we'll, we'll perhaps talk about this, but I know that the three of us all have probably what you would consider to be unconventional ways of training instructors, um, ways that conflict with the, the way that big brands do so. But I definitely think the key for me and the instructors I've helped has been, we don't, I don't train instructors the same way. I, I hate role play. I hate, I hate this idea of teaching subjects. So when I was training to be an instructor, it was like day, day two, one, you're, you're doing moving off and stopping and day two, you're doing junctions and day three, you're doing meeting traffic. And it's like, well, it's not really how it works. We, what are the skills associated with that? And so I like to think to answer your question, if, if it's an acceptable answer that one of the reasons that I, I, and I have had a good relationship with instructors and learners is because my foundation was quite good. I care about people. I, I can communicate. I am a natural teacher, but also when it comes to instructors who are new into the industry, the current system of training doesn't work, I don't think. I don't think it's a way to transfer skills. And if I took you, Philip, and said, we're going we're gonna to role play a scenario, that might be good in a small few sections, but I, I, don't, I don't think role play is the right way to do it. And I've never done role play. And I don't think you have, have you? No, I, I, I dislike role play. I think it serves a type of role play, serves a purpose at the at start when you're training sort of maybe spotting faults um or being able to grab the wheel and just the kind of keeping safe sort of stuff but i think 
the the things you're talking about where it's about building that rapport having the right sort of questioning techniques um so that you can have a nice environment like create a nice environment for your learners that can really only be done with a real learner in in my opinion and with with you sat in the back supporting that 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 situation I, I love your sort of like having started at 21 because it's like very similar to my stories because I started at 21 and, and I remember the I remember going to the test center quite a few times and the examiner thinking I was the pupil <laughs> so he'd wander over and I'm like no no not me not not today um that happened to me a few times yeah that's quite quite particularly when you had an, an older an older pupil or, or if I was ever out with my dad it was always it looked like he was my instructor um so that was quite quite amusing just moving over to you then Diana so we're all on the same page really <laughs> realistically so with what um Dekalian was talking about how the training doesn't quite work and and the role play and stuff so how do you go about that in your in your training sessions it's interesting because I was listening to Tikalian and I was thinking, oh my gosh, your journey is so similar, so similar to ours actually because um, a change in management instigated my need for um, that flexibility and freedom as well. So um, that was interesting. Training. So because I had, you know, the lockdown, COVID baby, etc., I genuinely, and I, I know you guys have heard me say this before, I thought I would be the bee's knees in terms of my instruction. I thought I would be brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And oh, what a fall from grace I had on that very first lesson after COVID, where I had all the, um, the questions and all the things that I wanted to ask. Um, but I didn't have the substance behind it I didn't have the tools in my toolbox and it's interesting I was I was lucky to get on with all my trainers I had I, I think I was a bit of a hybrid because I had I have a very good relationship with my um first trainer I did seek additional local training um as well and and that offered a different element and dynamic to my training that I, I didn't get from the first trainer and then of course Lou and Blaine and Laura's support added an extra layer and and for me some of those views opinions techniques styles complemented one another and some of them conflicted massively. So I would find myself doing a lesson with one trainer in the back, and I would ask a particular question or deliver something in a particular way, and one trainer would love it. And they'd go, wow, that's 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 great. I really like that. I like what you did there. It was nice that you used that as an, an example. And then I would have another trainer in the back or I would have somebody watch a video and they would critique it within an in inch of its life and hated it. So then I, a bit like Decalion, started to question, am I being trained or am I being critiqued based on people's opinions? Where's their substance? Where is the text that says I must do it this way? Whereas the text, it says I must not do it this way. And and I think that's when I started to get a little bit more curious 
in terms of what I was being told and why. And that I have taken through my training sessions. So I've had, I'm lucky to have been able to support a lot of PDIs. And actually, when you consider I've only, I've only been an ADI myself for two years, but I would say I've probably, I've supported hundreds, hundreds, which is, is scary actually to think about that. But one of my go-tos is I encourage them to ask why. If I'm asking them or advising them or suggesting to them a certain element or as we're going through the competencies or we're exploring tools and techniques that's right for them and right for the pupil, I get them to be comfortable enough with me in order to query what it is I'm saying. Because sometimes we have, or or certainly in my experience, um, the trainers, some trainers out there, tell you what to do but again it's lacking in substance um and they don't have that follow-up I'm a big fan of building rapport I think of myself as a little bit like a chameleon but it's almost like that movie split I have different personalities for different people which sounds weird but that's a big part of building rapport and being at home with people understanding what what they need you to be at that moment in time in order to get them through and I know we guys we guys us we've had conversations and and I would love I'd love to have PDIs that come to me at the start of their journey and they're you know we explore the best ways to develop them but unfortunately, the reality of the situation is we get people that are on the third and final attempt at part three, and by God, their cortisol is through the roof because they've been sold the dream and now they're managing the nightmare. And that was a big thing in director of sales when I was when I was looking at hospitality. You know, it was a standing joke that the sales team sold the dream and the ops team had to manage the nightmare. And I just feel like I've been planted in that 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 place again because these PDIs are let down so drastically by by the industry actually but that's a whole other topic we'll, we'll, we'll go there maybe another time but um, because nobody is being encouraged to question the training that's being delivered and we are all being forced, I'm probably going to ruin my career with this statement, but we're all being forced into doing training in a, a way that most people don't like, such as role play. And I had I had someone ask me today if, if I was an audit trainer, and I'm not. And I asked why that was important to them, and they believed that, that you had to be in order to be um guided or trained or advised in order to pass their part three and of course that's not true as well but that is the directive from the dbsa you don't you don't have to be an adi um <laughs> to be a to be a trainer <clears throat> it's unregulated i mean but people can't believe that when i say that so mm. just I'm just intrigued on um 
kind of wanted to link this to the loose PDI group that we're all admin on, because we do have this sort of balance that we have to kind of create where we are supporting PDIs, but we're aware that we're not in the car with them. Um, and so we can't necessarily, we can offer advice, but we can't be there sort of supporting everyone in the car, although we do obviously offer um, like watching their videos of lessons and Zoom sessions, but we're not their trainer. And and I think we, what I kind of want to get across is that we do try and match that balance of not going out there, gung-ho, saying we are right, your trainer's wrong. Um because we want to work with the trainers we want to we want it to be sort of a collaborative sort of kind of effort and the way we do that is what you just explained where if we are offering advice that is different to a trainer then we want the the pdi to go and critically think about that and work out a what's best for them what makes sense for them does it work try both if need but if needs be but also like you say go and have a look at the literature um, and we're very conscious in, on the group, I think, between all of us as admins, that we won't put anything out that we aren't sure is true um, and correct and according to the DVSA literature somewhere. Um, so, yeah, we're very keen to sort of kind of make sure that is the case. And, and we quite often have chats. So I'm, I'm particularly me. I'm always messaging you guys going, um, hey, guys, <laughs> is this right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is. But is this right? Um, and and we just use that sort of to make sure that we are making like I'd, I'd never want to give out the information to someone and it not be correct so yeah we I think that's one of the strengths of the group is that the content you get there is is it's correct <laughs> basically you're not getting that sort of a hundred different answers from a hundred different ADIs you're, you're getting you're getting that answer from people who who have checked that it's correct basically between 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 us so i just want to move on a little bit uh we're going to have a little talk about the uh competencies now so uh my goal on the podcast here is to go through the 17 competencies and just to spend an episode on each one to have a little chat discussing maybe what some of the pitfalls are um some of the solutions that we can come up with to make sure you're hitting these um because i particularly wanted to make sure although i want this podcast to showcase you guys and 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 your stories i also wanted it to be a bit of a training podcast so i want people to sort of have something to take away and learn from so the first competency is did the trainer um identify the pupils learning goals and needs now, I'm going to let one of you guys, um, I think Dekali and I'll let you explain this competency. But before you do, I just want, from my point of view here, I think this may be the most important one. <laughs> um, I think it is my my number one competency. I, the, there are lots in there that are really important. I suppose all 17 are. Um, but I think if you don't get this one right, you don't pass. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Because if you get this one wrong, all the others come tumbling down and you, you don't get a pass. So, yeah, Callan, did you want to just explain to us a little bit what, what this competency means to you? Yeah, I, I think I, I totally agree with what you've just said. So it's I don't think it's a coincidence that this is the first competency. In my mind, this is the competency that sets gets the ball rolling and sets the tone for the lesson. Yeah, so there are certain competencies which, if got wrong, will trigger a loss in points in many other competencies, what Lou would call the 
um, well, seven or eight deadly sins, depending on where you are. I, I think that this is one that has the capacity to trigger success or a lack thereof in other competencies. So the did the trainer identify the, the, the pupils' learning goals and needs? The first thing that I would say about this is there's there are some key words just in if you read that carefully. So um did the trainer identify the learning goals and needs? That's that's a really important word that we want to look at. Something that I think a lot of PDIs get wrong here is they try quite often PDIs will try and deliver the lesson that they feel comfortable and confident delivering on their part three test because they feel like that's what they know. And then so they find the subject that they want and then they pick a pupil that they get on with. What? Because you would do that. Somebody you can rely on and somebody you like. Great. But the problem with that when you do it that way in that order is that the subject you like teaching may not be the need that you would identify with that pupil. And so for me, I would generally kind of encourage it to be the other way around. If you're going to try and do it in some order, I would say find a student that's reliable, one that you can have an engaged conversation with, one where you can have a back and forth. You don't want somebody who's unreliable and might let you down. You don't want somebody who's going to be a bit of a grunter. Um, <laughs> and you don't want somebody who's going to not challenge you or challenge you too much. Um, so find somebody that works well with you where you have a good rapport with and then identify their learning need. It's, it sounds so simple, but so many PDIs get that wrong. You need to identify their needs. Now, what do I mean when I say identify it? Well, you don't pick it. <laughs> you, don't, you don't tell them. You don't choose it. You identify with the student in a client-centered way in which, in other words, you agree upon that together based on what you two know about that pupil's genuine needs. And I mean genuine needs. So I say to PDIs all the time, you don't have to stage it. You haven't got to, you haven't got to make it up. We've all got learning needs. Yeah, that, that, as good or bad as this person may or may not be, this, this pupil that you want to use, what's a genuine need? Ask yourself, what is an area that they need to work on? And then ask them. So the first thing that I would say about this competency is that you want to identify with them in a fair and honest way, what are their genuine needs and agree upon that. The second thing that I would say is, is you need to really be specific about what the need is. So as driving instructors, one of my favorite phrases, is, we teach skills, not subjects. We've all used that. We teach skills, not subjects. So if somebody comes to me and says, okay, the lesson plan today is roundabouts. What does that mean? Like, I, I don't know what that means. What do you, specifically Tell me what the what the what the learning need is. When you say that, I, I don't know what you mean. That could be anything. Are you just doing a broad lesson on roundabouts, or are you doing an, a specific part of it? Because you could do a part three lesson on judgment at roundabouts. So this is my student Ben, Philip, Diana, and actually we've been working on roundabouts, but the judgment bit, the bit where we make that crucial decision as to whether we're going to go or not, we need to work on that. It can be it can be very specific. It can be broad as long as that's a genuine need. So I need I strongly encourage instructors, PDIs to be specific about what that need is with the pupil. You want to both mutually agree the specific skills and needs for that lesson. Can I jump in? Jump in here a second, um, just because you've mentioned teaching skills, not topics, um, and I'm 
fully aware of what you mean, <laughs> but I'm conscious and particularly actually because I've had this conversation this week with a PDI that when we talk about skills that actually I don't think one, I don't think all trainers are talking about the same set of skills um, that we would potentially talk about. So just t talk to me about what you mean about what, what are the skills in your mind? Well, first, uh, the five primary skills, as far as I'm concerned, and I think we generally see this the same way is planning, awareness, anticipation, car control, and judgment. If you look at the skills that we teach as driving instructors, it generally boils down to those five skills eventually. Yeah. So that's not to say that you need to go into your part three test only picking one of those things. But I would say if this pupil has a need for roundabouts, as I use that as an example because it's a commonly focused uh, area, I would say specifically what are the skills that you need to work on to improve the roundabout? Okay, so the roundabout, excuse the pun, is almost the vehicle, um, oh, sorry, the, the, the skill is the vehicle to get to improved roundabouts. So you want to be better at roundabouts, great specifically what skills do we need to work on to improve them so if i have a student who is really poor with what we you know the look the look and make your decision whether we're going to go that's judgment so what factors do we need to take into account to improve that skill of judgment well we're going to look at the indicators obviously we're going to look at the indicators but what else can we look at we can look at the speed of the car because generally people who are going faster tend to be going forwards that's not a it's not a, a, a definite science but it's a it's a factor you're going to look at what lane they're in are they wide are they near the roundabout because that could be an indicator of where they're going look where the driver is facing look where the wheels are facing so all of that all of those questions are built from a very specific part of roundabouts. Now notice, notice how we haven't mentioned mirror signal position speed. We're just talking about the look bit. So when you say to me, I'm gonna do roundabouts, I'm gonna ask you specifically, what is it that you need to, what other skills you need to work on to improve that roundabout? Because you might find yourself in a situation where an examiner is saying, well, you said roundabouts. And actually you're not really just, you're not doing roundabouts as a whole, you're doing judgment. So um, does that, does, before I go any further, does, did that kind of answer your question or have I gone off on a tangent? No, no, that's exactly what, what, what I was looking for um, because I'm aware that not everyone knows those. I, I, I know a lot of people do, but not everyone would see those as the, as the skills that we teach. I just want to kind of move slightly backwards actually a little bit and this is probably for you, uh, Diana. Um, we talked about, like picking up on like specific words within that sentence um and you were talking about that that identify their their goals and needs and i'm i'm intrigued by the bit that i because I, the thing i think that's quite important is that a lot of people maybe make that mistake and i just want you to like talk about this a little bit is the did the trainer identify and and the trainer being the key word because we hear a lot where well my pupil wanted to do this and so we carried on with this, but it is important that it's like, did the trainer identify? So just wanted if you had any examples or just wanted to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So it links really nicely to that age old, I'm going to say a crap question. How much help do you want from me? And it's a crap question because unless that pupil is at an ability where 
you don't mind if they have questions or they would like to have a go and that's very very different to not having any learning needs you know I'm not I'm not saying that but if you're confident comfortable competent enough to be able to keep that situation safe regardless of which um level of instruction that pupil decides then you might ask that question but for me it's about providing a menu of choices based on what you anticipate them needing from you. So I'll give you an example of that. Um, how many times? And I, I, I don't believe this whole, you know, the pupil says he wants to do motorways. He's not even turned left at a junction. I don't think our pupils are that daft. You know, nobody's asking to do motorways when they can't turn right. That's just nonsense. However, what I do see all the time is how much help do you want from me? Sorry, I can't I can't do it without doing the voice. Um, how much help do you want from me? And the pupil will most likely say, I'll have a go and you tell me what I'm doing wrong. Because that is the way that we've typically learned through life. You know, mum and dad are encouraging you to do things independently, who can feed themselves today and all this nonsense. You know, we're, we're very encouraging in terms of developing our own skills. Um, but that's not appropriate. Uh, it's not appropriate in a fast moving environment where you and that pupil are responsible for your safety and everybody else's safety around you. So don't give them that option. Don't say how much help you want from me because client-centred and client-led are two completely different things. And we see this time and time again where the instructor will say, well, they wanted to, I had it today, I have it most days with instructors. Well, what am I going to do with this? She wants to try it herself. I've said to her, does she want, you know, how much help do you want from me? And she said um, she wants to have a go. Don't give her that option. You know, and what I tend to do is justify my menu of choices. And what I mean by that is, say, for example, we have covered meeting traffic. We have looked at what we need to be doing in that area. And with the skill of awareness, anticipation, plan and judgment, car control, it's got all of those in it. Yet, we make the area more challenging. I would suggest to the pupil, okay, Lauren, um, we're taking you to a new area. You have experience of navigating cars using those skills that we've discussed before. Because we're going to up the complexity here, would you like me to continue questioning you or would you like a full talk through? And, and I'm, I would provide a justification for that. Because it's a more challenging area and it's rush hour, would you like that full talk through in order for you to feel confident by the end of, of this loop with a view that will hand it over to you by the end of the lesson? Does that sound okay? And they will then choose one of your menu, you know, one of your 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 ideas. Um, because it's a collaborative agreement. It is it's based on on where they're at now 
and where they need to be in the future, not have a go and step in if, if needed. And that's, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent now. It's very, very different. Of course, we have to let our pupils make mistakes because that is how we learn. And I know that and we have to let go of the reins in some instances, but safety has to be our priority. And if they're not going to be safe having a goal, then don't let them bloody choose it. Sorry. I think also I'd link that to what you that last little bit that you said about letting them make mistakes. But in reality, people do learn from positive experiences better than from negative experiences. So although we do learn from mistakes, we don't we learn from getting it right better so why not go and, and and have that positive experience um so i just want to in, i'm intrigued on on this little bit about um one of the most common mistakes i think that comes up on this competency is the belief that it's done in the briefing so boom i get this right i've i've, I've written my briefing out the pupil's gonna say this i'm gonna say that we've, we've maybe even practiced it <laughs> Um, so they know what they're going to say. I know what I'm going to say. Boom. I've got three for that one. Move on. I can do whatever I want in the rest of the lesson. At least I've got three points. Um, to Callan, did you want to... Do you know, I mean, you're saying that somewhat humorously, but also literally, because that's exactly what happens. And if I can, if I can be really clear about this, this is not something that you should treat as a box-ticking exercise. You will not get three points... Even if, even if, like, take everything that we've just talked about, take everything that I said about you've got to be specific about what the skills you're working on and, and how you're going to get there and everything that Diana said about give them a, an option that's sensible and then we agree it and it's beautiful. You don't just get three points for that. Like, so it's, it's not a one and done. It's not a I can have this nice chat that I've written down and memorized and I've given my pupil the answers that they're going to give me and then it's just done. This is an ongoing thing to be reviewed. And so think about what we're asking with this competency. Did the trainer identify the pupil's learning goals and needs? Well, clearly you want to get a good start with that by having a clear vision for their needs, mutually agreed um, by both parties and so that everybody understands what's going on. But if for the next 45 minutes that, that they keep driving into walls and you said we're going to work on roundabouts and you continue to try and work on roundabouts and you're not fixing the fact that they want to drive into walls, are you identifying their learning goals and needs? And so I would say clearly you're not. So this is an ongoing review. Even during the lesson, it might be that you had an entire session planned out and this is where I say this is one of the competencies that lends itself to other competencies. And I'm sure as you go through the 17 through your podcast, you'll you'll touch on some of this stuff, Philip. But you, if if they if you get driving one as soon as you've agreed this beautiful lesson plan, even if that was their genuine shown needs, even if you were spot on, but it might be that that you you start driving. And the pupil starts doing stuff they've never done before, maybe, because they've got this examiner in the back. Maybe they're nervous. Maybe they've had a bad day. Maybe they didn't sleep well. Maybe they have a great day. Maybe they start driving better than you've ever expected. Part of your identifying their learning goals and needs is incorporated in reviewing that over and over. 
throughout the duration of that lesson. And you must be willing to change the plan. And I know that that's a competency in and of itself. You, you must not fall into the trap of thinking that this is, I get three points if I get this conversation right. Um, that's not how it goes. You have to you have to stop your pupils driving into walls and you have to fix that. And you must be willing to adapt the lesson and you must be constantly identifying their needs and agreeing with them in the ways that, you know, Diana has expressed, you know, let's be, let's be serious. Although it's, we, we want, we want to show that we're working with our learners to agree their needs. We don't want to just be telling them that's a bit old school, but also we probably know a fair amount more than they do about some of their needs, at least some of them. So it's an ongoing thing that you need to be reviewing. It's not a one and done. It's not a tick. Yeah, I've done that. It's be willing to review their needs constantly. Yeah, I fully, obviously fully agree. Um, and you and that bit about it linking to particularly adapting the lesson, I think it, again, it's so common to see the same score in both of those boxes. Um, because if you haven't adapted the lesson, then you the reason you haven't adapted the lesson normally is because you haven't identified the pupil's need. Whether that is because they're making mistakes and I'm concerned about all your pupils driving into walls. Um, <laughs> the or, or whether it is actually that the pupil's doing really well and you haven't identified that their new need is to push on. Um, exactly. So it's it's very much linked and quite often we see part three forms that is nearly always well not not nearly always so because a lot of people go and pass but i mean if if it's failed it, it's either one one three one or one 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 and and the three is the is the um the air was the area correct i can't remember the exact wordings but so sometimes you can get the correct area, but not identify the goals and needs. So for example, the roundabout thing, you could be getting a free because you're doing the correct roundabouts, but you just haven't identified that your pupil isn't looking early enough, for example. So you're doing the correct thing, but not you haven't identified your pupil's need. And so therefore you're going to get one, one, free one. Can I, can I give a really quick example on that? Um, I was working with PDI once who, whose pupil had a genuine need on roundabouts. Genuinely, that's what they were working on, and genuinely, that's what they needed to work on. But the pupil had a real anxiety about judgment, about knowing when to go, and it was a manual tr uh, transmission. And what happened was, although they were working towards the shown needs up until that point, every time they came to a roundabout that wasn't empty, the pupil would be so anxious about taking that gap that the pupil would stall He'd step off the clutch and he'd try and pull away quickly because he was so full of dread that he'd stall. PDI took control, handled the situation. Let's get out of here, you know. And and did everything in that moment that was right. Allowed the pupil to be comfortable and controlled, and didn't didn't let them lose lose their head and took them took them out of that scenario. We came to the next roundabout that wasn't empty, and the same thing happened again. People stalled, instructor took control, made the pupil feel comfortable. It's okay, don't worry, we're going to get through this. Let's get out of the situation. Took them to the next roundabout, and the same thing happened over and over and over. Now, yes, that pupil has a need for roundabouts. Yes, that pupil has anxieties towards judgment and towards other traffic. But at no point did the PDI ever address the fact that he kept stalling, ever address the fact that 
there was a need specifically there was a need here and so he just allowed this learner to to continuously stall and lo and behold at the end of the session the examiner said you didn't fix the learning need he was stalling at the very first roundabout and he was stalling at the very last roundabout so you never addressed that. You did beautifully to get them out of that scenario. I believe that this lesson was a lesson that needed working on, but you were so tunnel visioned on what you wanted to do. You didn't account for any other errors and stalling wasn't on your menu. So you never fixed it. You just said, we're going to do that next time. We're going to work on your stalling next time. And I think that's a good example of that. Absolutely. Um, and my guess that would actually probably have been one, 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 because you're, you're not, you're no longer in the right area either, because although you were doing roundabouts, you now probably needed to take that pupil somewhere a bit quieter to work on them they're moving off um yeah it's a classic it's a classic example it's i'm sure there are going to be people listening that have done that on lessons or done that on part phrase um and yeah it and it is yeah it's just a classic example of of, of falling into that trap so we've talked about mistakes we've talked about potentially what the competency is about um I'm intrigued and I'm probably going to put you both a bit on the spot here. Um, I'm starting with you, Diana. Um, so uh, what are your solutions to it? So what do you tell your PDIs to go and do to not fall into this trap? So for me, a, a big one is to be in the moment. If you hear yourself, and I'm a great believer in teamwork as well. So I get the pupils. It's 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 again very collaborative. So during the PDI sessions, um, we talk in a nice way about what the pupil can do to help the PDI. And I don't mean put on a show or give scripted answers or any of that nonsense. But what I do mean is if you hear your instructor ask you this question let him know let her know that it's it's not right you know the how much help do you want from me if you find that the instructor is telling you stuff you already know and swaying from that that agreed level and you are confident comfortable competent to do it let them know your job is to get them to shut up by the end of it if you feel ready, communicate that to them as well. And I think another little trap that instructors fall into, and I'm sure you guys have heard this as well, the, the lesson before the lesson before the, the part three. So I have PDIs come to me and say the straight lining the roundabout. Should I save that? For the part three no do not go looking for trouble trouble will find you it will bite you in the backside without you even having to look for it and also what what kind of message does that send to the pupil when in one lesson they're straight lining it and we say nothing to them the next lesson we don't fix it because we want to save it for the part three and then all of a sudden this this person who's been sat next to you starts pulling you up for something that you've been doing for the past two lessons and telling you you're doing it wrong but you've always done it right for the past couple of times so things like that um is something that that, that I would discourage people from doing solutions 
if you hear yourself talking and that's not what you've agreed if you find yourself doing the whole hand movements the the holding on to the the door handle toes curling as the speed is coming up to the junctions anything that is involuntary um then that's a need if you have that gut feel where you have to step in in one way or another that's a need pupil is showing it to you if they're doing something that or not doing something that you would or wouldn't do that's a need and I also I also share with the PDIs everyone can make mistakes and 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 I agree Phil that yes we learn from positives and um and absolutely that's what we do we we're always um because it's, it's scary to learn to drive, actually. It's quite a big task. So we're, we're reinforcing their good decisions and their ability and constantly doing that. But when they are in that moment and they make a fault, yes, that's one fault. It's an opportunity and it's a gift for you in your part three if you identify that goal and need successfully. If they then go and do that fault again, that's no longer on the pupil. That's your fault. You haven't supported them in the right way to help them understand how they can do it better, how they can keep themselves safe. So it's very much a, a gut feel. It's hard to explain. But for me, it's it's being in the moment... And it's very, very closely linked to that adapting competency as well. Um, because if you're not adapting, then something is wrong with that lesson. Because at some point, as you've discussed earlier, we're going to have to adapt, whether that be to make it more challenging, whether that be to make it more easy, whether that be the area, whether that be just your level of instruction, whether that be the complete and utter goal difference or skill difference because as Decalion said with his example in roundabouts that skill was judgment but it also manifested itself in car control so that doesn't mean and this is where I think a lot of people fall down as well I can imagine that some ADIs PDIs um if a pupil is stalling they end up going and doing moving off and stopping or hill starts or something, you know, something completely unrelated. It's about listening and asking the right questions as well. Never making assumptions about why a fault has happened in the first place. And I'm always amazed at, at, at how many reasons a fault can actually, uh, how many reasons there can be for a fault to manifest itself. And you've got no idea what that fault is is caused by. So for me, it's also about asking the right questions and listening. Because those little nuggets that the learner will give you can open up a massive opportunity for you to get to the crux of an issue very, 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 very quickly. Just by listening and not assuming 
based on your experience or lack thereof. That was wonderful. Um, I just want to jump in on, on the very first thing you said, actually, about getting your pupils to tell you when it's not feeling right. And that's obviously something you do when you're in the car with the, with, with the PDI or, or even the ADI. But I think that's something I would suggest everyone does full stop. Like, if you want to improve as an instructor, tell your pupils you want to improve as an instructor. And is there anything I could do differently? Was there any point where I over like rode what you were thinking there? Or was there any point that I got it completely wrong? Um, because that's when you'll start to notice when you're not listening or you're not asking. Because they they will if they're confident enough and comfortable enough with you to say, no, that wasn't what I was thinking actually. Then you suddenly realize, wait a minute, I am jumping to conclusions. So I think that's something I would suggest a lot of people could do to improve their their lessons is get the pupils involved in that feedback. Solutions again. So just kind of think of anything you in particular would put in on your on your sessions with PDIs or anything PDIs can go away and do on their own to help them hit this competency and the others that connected. I really feel strongly about this and it's not an easy fix. When you get guys and girls come to us and they're, when you get guys and girls come to you who are on their third attempt of part three and they've been trained elsewhere and it's not really gone to plan, this is, this is, this is a hard thing to put right. For me, I really think that it, and it's a long-winded solution. It's not a quick fix. But when I get guys and girls who are struggling with this, I really have to look at the culture of their training. I totally echo what Diana just said. Um, one of my my thing, my big thing when I train instructors is is I really, one of the first things I look at when I sit in the back of someone's lesson for the first time is I really examine the way they ask questions. Because I think the way somebody asks questions is hugely indicative of them as a trainer um, and their style of training. So Diana said a minute ago about, you know, how does it feel? And this is this is quite a difficult thing to teach because if you have no previous experience, um, that can be quite a difficult thing to explain. Like, how does this feel? But when you're in that seat and you're, you're observing someone, it does make sense. And quite a lot of the time, in my experience, people, instructors, um, are failed on their part three for over-instructing. In my experience, they are failed more often for over-instructing than under-instructing. However, however, when they are failed for under-instructing, I think that a lot of the time it's linked to the way you ask questions or, la or fail to do so. So if you've got someone who's showing a learning need, as Diana said, like you're, you're driving and you've got any of those moments where you're you're tensing or your your feet are wanting to lift off off the floor above the pedals or your 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 hands are gripping. If 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 that's happening, there's a learning need. Okay, so then that doesn't mean you have to go and tell them what the learning need is. I think when you have those moments, questions are your friends. But I mean effective, impactful questions. I don't mean like, what do you see ahead? Or oh, it's a bus. Because as all of us have said, a child with eyes could answer that question. Let's ask the genuine questions that are really relevant, the questions that make our students think. So I sat in the back of a session with a PDI once where they were working. I can't even remember what they were working on. And they came to this junction and this junction was on a steep hill. And the student, I mean, I, I say this, there's no way of sound, sounding um, there's no way of saying this and sounding humble, but I mean this humbly. 
but I could see what was happening. So the student uh, came up to this junction, rushed it, pulled out, and slowed down everyone on the main road. They were coming from the minor road and affected everyone on the road, everyone, and the dog. And the instructor went straight onto it because the instructor had been working a lot on the whole, you know, identify anything and fix it and put it right and don't don't get caught out not identifying needs. And so the instructor's first thing was to say, we need to go back to junctions. You made a real mess of that. We need to go back to junctions. And we went away and drove around really basic, quiet T-junctions for about 15 minutes. And they all went perfectly fine, every one of them. So he says, okay, I think you can, I think you can do, I think you could do junctions now on your own. Are you happy to take junctions back and we'll get back on what we were working on? People says yes. And it just so happens that the very next junction that they went to was on a steep hill and it went awful again. And the instructor kind of, what's going on? I don't know what's going on. And I, I, with the permission of the trainer, we'd agreed on the roles already, but I'd interjected and asked the pupil, tell me why you think this junction went wrong. Tell me why that first junction went wrong. And the pupil said, I hate hills. I, I hate hills. I don't like hills. I, as soon as I see it, I just want to rush. I just want to go. I don't want to, I'm trying everything to not stop on that hill. Cause if I stop, I have to do a hill start and then I'll roll away. And this pupil, it was like verbal diarrhea. Everything came out and the pupil did all of the work for the trainer. The pupil has told us what their concern was. They have told us what their need was. Now, did we fix that fault? No, we went away and did 15 minutes of junctions. And actually the, the potential need was learning, uh, was hills. My point for the telling the story is the PDI never asked a single question. And so I think one of the very first basic fundamental things we can do as trainers are, uh, is, is start asking effective questions. And I'm not talking about questions that a toddler with eyes could answer. I'm, I'm talking about questions that really make your student think. So you tell me how that felt. You tell me what we need. You tell me about how that's going to affect our journey. If there's a moment where you're tensing up, ask them how they felt. Because if you're tensing up, probably it felt some kind of wrong to them. Ask them, how did that go? And how do you feel it went? Was there any way we could have done that better? Was there any way we could have done that safer? Those kinds of questions. Now, you're not telling them it was wrong. You're making them think. And they'll probably come back to you with some kind of question, no, uh, some kind of answer rather. Might not be the right answer, but now, you're, now you have a dialogue and now you can build on that. And I say all the time, it doesn't matter what answer they give you. If you're asking them questions that make them think, you'll eventually get to some kind of need. And I think that's an extension of what Diana was talking about. But when I see the guys and girls who lose a lot of points on their part three for under-instructing, almost always it could have been fixed with just asking some more questions that make the pupil think. Don't ask dead-end questions. What do you see ahead? It's a bus. Ask them, what are you What are you thinking about this scenario? How did that feel? Did that feel like it could have gone better? Are you entirely happy with whatever this thing is, whatever the learning need is, whatever it is that's making you clench? You're not doing the work for them. You're making them think for themselves. And whatever answer they give you, you can build upon. And now an examiner sat in the back is at least looking at this and saying, okay, that thing that happened where I was clenching in the back, they're addressing it. They're not doing the work for them. They're making the pupil think. They're making the pupil analyze. And they're coming to this, hopefully, with a fix in sight. So I think I think for me, the main thing is really think about the way you ask questions and really think about, can I ask questions that makes my pupil think? Does, does it make them do some of the work rather than me just telling them? Yeah, I love that. So 
to summarize, I think between the two of you, you've kind of got not just spot the fault, but trust trust that feeling that you've spotted the fault. Um, and I quite often agree. I sat in the back and I see the instruct the instructor tense up or twitch their foot or something. I know they've seen what I've just seen, and then nothing comes out. And so I think that that's so crucial. And then how you then go about that is crucial. So it's sort of spot it. Um, acknowledge it and then and then those questions um and, and having those sort of kind of effective questions um and if anyone is looking for effective questions i'm doing a masterclass on terry's uh terry's instructor podcast um next week so come and join me for that before we finish off then um with your top tips and i feel like you've just given us a billion top tips already but these top tips are now probably just related to anything within in driving instructing rather than like specifically for though that that competency before we move on to that though um do you guys want to just tell everyone like where they can find you for training because you both sound awesome and so i'm sure there's gonna be loads of people that want to come and train with you guys now <laughs> um diana do you want to yeah um so you can find me on toddsdrivertraining.co.uk or as Phil mentioned earlier, I'm one of the admin, we're, we're all admin, on Lou's PDI group. What about any local training, who, who like, if they're local to you? Interesting. I'm so glad you mentioned this, actually. Um, I was having a, sorry for going off on a tangent, but I had a conversation with somebody yes, a couple of days ago. And we were chatting away for ages, and he was having his part three soon, and... He just randomly said something about, he was talking about roundabouts and all sorts. And then he said, I said, where are you based? And after about 20 minutes of a conversation, and there was no chance of us meeting one-to-one, or I didn't think so anyway. Um, and he's like, oh, I'm based in the Wirral. And that's what I'm based. I'm based in the Wirral, which is sort of Merseyside way. I was like, I'm in the Wirral. And he was like, I thought you were in Scotland. And the American people. I can't imagine where you got that from. Yeah, and what's funny, you know, and a and a lot of people think I'm in Scotland. Obviously, I'm from Scotland. Um, I've also had it the other way, where people have requested a one to one in Cumbernauld or or somewhere like that, and I'm like, it's too far. <laughs> but of course, as you said earlier, you know, we can do uh, video sessions, one to ones, and um, phone calls. Um, there's lots of opportunities where we can help. Decalion, where can everyone find you for training? Uh, well, so I'm, I'm based on the south coast in Portsmouth. I also spend about 50% of my life in Cardiff. So if you're in either of those two locations, you can directly get me there. But um, I'm also one of the admin on Lou's PDI group. If you're trying to contact me outside of those avenues, then you can do so at um, www.one-drive.co.uk. The driving schools... Um, one drive school of motoring we're on instagram or on facebook so any of those avenues you'll get hold of me awesome um and i think both of you mentioned lou's pdi group there and i, I would massively advise any pdis listening to come and join that group whether you want to do paid training or not it's just an amazing support group with like we talked about earlier where you're going to you're getting the correct answers you're not getting a billion different opinions um and everyone is so supportive in that group it's ridiculous how supportive they are of each other 
um so yeah anybody who's looking for that support then definitely come and join join that group um so before we move on to your top tips just want to let everyone know where they can find me and please subscribe if you've enjoyed today's podcast um and there will be more podcasts with similar conversations with some of the top trainers in the country um, and if you want training with me, you can come and find me on Facebook at Cowley's Instructor Training um, or my website, um, theinstructortrainer.com. So, guys, top tips. What are we sending everyone away with? Cowley, hit us with your top tip. I think for me, it's an extension of what I've already said. My big thing with training driving instructors is the way they ask questions, the effective questions. But my tip is this. So... If you're trying to think about the way you ask questions and how you can practice those questions, a lot of people say to me, you know, I, 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 especially if they haven't started teaching yet, how do I practice the way I ask questions? You can practice your questions with anyone. If you have children, you can practice the way you ask questions with children. I'll give you an example. If your child wants to eat chocolate and you want them to eat the apple, you can, you can create an entire conversation out of that. And you can do it in a way that, so something we teach instructors to do is, when we're trying to analyze and ask questions and so on is you should ask questions that identify the fault, analyze the fault, fix the fault and prevent the fault. So we can literally apply that to a conversation with a child who wants to eat the chocolate. And that conversation could go something like, I'm going to say my child's name is Philip. Philip, we disagree on something. What do you want? Well, I want the chocolate. What do I want you to have? You want me to have the apple. Why do you want the chocolate? Because it tastes nice. Why do I want you to have the apple? Because it's healthy. Okay, so what can we do? What compromise? How can we agree so that we're both happy? Now, the child might come up with, it doesn't matter what answer the child comes up with. This is the beauty of it. The child could say absolutely anything. But you come up with a compromise that you guys think works. And it might be that if I have a little bit of chocolate, I have the apple. Or if I have the apple first, I can have a little bit of chocolate. If I have the apple now, I can have some chocolate later. Whatever it is. If I have the chocolate now, I can't have any more later in the week, but I have to have apples. And then you come up with a solution that you as the parent are happy with. And you can apply that to any situation. It doesn't have to be kids. If you're a teacher, you can practice it with your students. If you're a nurse, you can practice it with your colleagues. If you're responsible for anyone or anything, you can practice it. You can practice it with your partners. I've had conversations with my, my girlfriend where I've practiced those skills. And it doesn't always go down well from the point of view of a relationship, but... You can practice the way you ask impactful questions with anyone, anywhere, so that you can identify the need, the issue, the problem, analyze the need, the issue, the problem, and then prevent it from coming back. And you can do it anywhere with anyone of any age. Love it. I absolutely love that. My wife always says that I have a driving instructor voice. Um, and 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 sometimes it comes out when i'm talking to the kids because <laughs> it because i go into driving instructor mode i remember she was um do i was doing a zoom the the other day and it was with dan actually we were pra we were practicing our workshop um and she said she came downstairs and was really confused why i have my driving instructor voice on because i was talking to my instructors and normally i've just got my normal chatty voice <laughs> with them she's like why have you got his driving instructor voice on he doesn't normally talk to them like that so i clearly have my driving instructor voice for when i'm in the car and um and this sort of goes back to what you were saying um earlier about having different personas and i think that's that you ever you do in life you have your different personas with different people so moving on to you, Dinah, what's your um, big takeaway for everyone? 
Um, I actually just want to sort of piggyback. I, I have a new one, uh, but I want to piggyback onto Tikalian's um comment there with children. I often, and this is really naughty, and I, I, I kind of hope that Stuart doesn't listen to your podcast, no offence, but I often have those conversations with Sophia, my daughter, who's eight, and I have the best conversations with her. But I do it as a teaching and learning strategy session with Stuart in terms of showing him the skills often as a rescue attempt when I'll say poo has hit the fan um when when you know mini me is having a meltdown over x y and z generally down to lack of communication so yeah I I, I compliment that uh, and fully agree before you before you go into your top tip I just want to actually say that you have got some amazing videos with Sophia um and watching like getting her to be aware of the road so i think anybody looking at that it'll be on your it's on your facebook page isn't it um a great way to have to again practice those questions with your kids but also actually what a great way to get your kids to start to be aware of the road whether that's for crossing the road or for the future driving she's going to be a ninja driver by the time she's 17 so (laughs) (laughs) absolutely magnificent she comes and it's that no assumptions on what the answer is going to be I never know and she really really surprises me with some of her insights I I just think wow you know you're 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 a little sponge and you're amazing anyway so gone off topic I have changed my top tip because we were discussing this earlier um mine is going to be and again, without kind of any accusation or judgment in this statement, but work smarter, not harder. If you find yourself firefighting continuously, find a different way. You know, if you're asking question after question after question after question after question, find a better question. Um and when I say work smarter, not harder, especially with this competency, actually, I really struggled with this as a PDI because when pupils are learning to drive, wrongly or rightly, we don't necessarily pull them up or fault fix every blooming fault because, by God, it would so destroy them. But the problem with that is that when it then comes to the part three, we then habitually overlook faults or we let them away with things because we don't want to soul destroy them. So practice that part three environment. Have somebody in the back of your car. Practice delivering 45-minute lessons. Practice and tell your pupils that this is what you're going to do. You know, we're going to really strip back. We're going to look at every developmental opportunity. So again, I wouldn't even call it faults. It's a development opportunity so that you can be the best that you can be. Um, Because, of course, all of our lessons aren't like that. Could you imagine we pulled our pupils up for every goddamn fault on every lesson? You wouldn't even get out of the nursery route without actually being fired as a driving instructor, probably. So that I struggled with. And I asked my trainer that at the time, at what point do you 
practice pulling, uh, you know, identifying, analyzing, and fixing the faults for all of them without crushing their souls. And my advice would be to practice it um, with the pupils understanding that there is a developmental need. And, you know, it's um, practice delivering a part three session with people in the back, fixing faults and work smarter, not harder in doing so, so that you get good at being good and not good at being very bad. Thank you very much. So thank you everyone for for listening and like I said please subscribe and um, keep listening we've got loads more guests coming up um, and thank you too for coming on and being awesome. Cowley's Instructor Podcast where the learning never stops.